Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Last time we saw the Bible's definition of salvation in the first gospel. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first message of the gospel. And this salvation that God declares in our need of salvation and that that need has absolutely no root cause in the social ills between man and man because Adam and Eve knew no social ills in the garden. Even according to the ridiculous way in which today's culture defines those ills, many of which are not ills. But even then, the entire human world Just two persons at that time. But all the world, Adam and Eve, had complete and perfect 100% peace and harmony and equality and equity and justice and acceptance and inclusivity and diversity and sensitivity and all the other itties. They had it all. Why did they need to be saved? Because they had sinned against God. Because his wrath was going to fall upon them and rightly so. They had everything that our culture says you need to have utopia and God's curse was upon them. It's interesting. All societal harm, all suffering, all injustice and all the ills that we see in this world are the effect of sin, beloved. They're not the source. When will the church learn that? This world is fallen. Man's sinful disobedience is to God. And that has corrupted our nature. And that has corrupted all things. And that has brought harm and discord and disharmony and suffering and injustice, yes, into the world. But it's because we've sinned against God. We've offended Him. And even if everything was great in this world, as it was in the garden, society speaking, His wrath would be upon us unless we were made right with him, which can only be done through Jesus Christ and the salvation he purchased for us on the cross. And so if you look into your bulletin this morning, you'll see that the title of the sermon is God's judgments on sin in this world. That's the truncated title. I have limited space on the sign. The full title would be God's salvific purposes seen in his restrained judgments on sin in this world. Okay, I want you to think about that. God's salvific purposes seen in his restrained judgments upon sin in this world. Because underlying every word in this text, and this is the text of judgment, from 14 to 19 is all of God's judgment on sin in this life. You know hell is coming. And the final judgment. But in this world, this is it. These verses summarize how God is going to continue to judge sin until Christ returns in this world. Every word. And yet underlying every word is God's eternal purpose to save, to redeem, to reconcile, to restore his people to full salvation and to a society. Yea, even a family. With him. And that's what we see in our text this morning. So let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that in this word of judgment is not destruction for us, 
but preservation for us, salvation for us. For you are the God who causes all things to work for the good of those who love you and those who are called according to your purpose. And so, Father, even these judgments in the garden work salvation for your people if they just believe in you. So help us to believe this morning and to trust in you and not in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is God's holy and perfect word. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity... Between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The word of the Lord. May he establish it in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice first of all this morning, salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. Again, verses 14 through 19, give us the full judgment of God upon sin in this world until Christ returns. Think of it. It's all right here in this text. And we need to remember that when we see difficult things in this world, when we see harm in this world, because it's been said, and you've heard me mention this before, but let's just do it one more time, that it's been Declared by, and it's been questioned by critics and by skeptics of our faith, by unbelievers, by those who would ridicule us. Um, They think they have what they call the Achilles heel of Christianity, you know, the weak spot that, that brings down the whole system. And that is the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Because they reason this way if God is all powerful, and He is, and if God is all good, and He is, Why is there evil? How can there be evil? How can this good God in his good and all-powerful ability allow evil and suffering to be in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people if your God is all-powerful and all-good? And of course, we have an answer for that criticism. The first part of it is that bad things never happen to good people. That's never happened excluding Christ, the only good person that ever lived. Nobody ever had a single thing happen to them, not only that was bad, which would be unjust, 
But nobody breathing has ever even had the full measure of justice meted back to them. We've never even gotten all that we really do deserve for the things that we've done. And we need to remember that. That we've never even seen the justice of God, let alone something wrong in this universe. Now, what's confusing and what's confusing to most people is we see human beings do things that are wrong, right? We see somebody do something unjust to someone else, and that happens all the time. Creaturely injustice, temporal injustice, proximate injustice. Somebody takes somebody else's money. It doesn't belong to them. They have no right to do that. That's wrong. That's bad. However, in that God has allowed that to happen, has he done anything wrong to that person? What do we actually owe God for our sins? And we're all sinners. What we've seen in our text. We not only owe him our souls and our lives, we should be in hell because we've sinned. That's the penalty for sin. We should actually be suffering in hell forever. So while that person may have done wrong and had no right, we can't say anything against God. If he, through that person, allows a little bit of justice to come upon us, a little bit of suffering, we actually deserve so much more. The sinners... The unbelievers in this world, their their worst day is going to be better than their best day in hell. Think about that. As bad as you've ever seen anything happen in this world, the best thing in hell will be worse. And we forget about that. Because justice is God's wrath. That's what we deserve. The amazing thing isn't that people suffer in this world. We deserve that. The amazing thing is that there's so much non-suffering, so much pleasure, so much enjoyment, so much good that we all experience that people give up all sorts of things just to experience the next pleasure in this world. The amazing thing is God's mercy. It's evil really, or it's easy rather, really to answer the question, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? I'll tell you why. Because God is merciful. That's why. If God were to bring justice, if God were to give us all what we deserve, he would have killed Adam and Eve the moment the fruit touched their lips. They would have been in hell that moment. They would have never had any children, and there would be no bad things happening to anybody. And no people would be doing bad things. But God was merciful to Adam and Eve. He let them live. And they're sinners now. So what are they going to do? Sinners do bad things. So because he was merciful and didn't kill them, they lived and they did bad things. And they had children who lived and did bad things. And so we see bad things. Because God isn't giving us what we deserve. He's being merciful. He's restraining his judgment. And if he restrains his judgment on a world of sinners, then those sinners are going to do bad things to one another. The reason why there is evil in the world is because God is merciful and he's not given us what we deserve. And we need to remember that, beloved, that that's when when we go through these judgments in this text, that man's sin is the reason for evil in the world. Otherwise, it would be an absolute paradise. It was paradise until Adam and Eve sinned. But their sin, as we've looked at it, it dishonored God. It usurped his authority. 
It blasphemed his holy character. It despised his goodness. It corrupted and ruined his perfect work. Whereby he was sharing and going to share the fullness of his own blessedness with creatures whom he made like him, us. That we could experience his joy and his delight in his being, in himself. He made us to know that. And the only thing that he said... The only thing that he held back was that we would still acknowledge that he was higher than we were. That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil represented. Don't eat from this tree. You can have everything else. You can do whatever you want. Just acknowledge that I'm still God, that I'm still in charge, and keep this one rule. And that was too much for our first mother and our first father. And let's remember that's who they were. We all came from them. That was too much for them. They had everything they could want in the garden. Everything was perfect. They had no needs. They simply had to continue to acknowledge that God was higher than them. And they wouldn't do that. That was too intolerable of a situation. And so they attempted to take him out. That's really what eating from the tree was. To remove him. To become God. You will be like God. You will determine good and evil. You'll have complete control of all things and that's what they did and that's where we're at in the garden in the garden right now we're in the courtroom the judge has seated himself he's about to pronounce sentence he's already done that on the serpent and we saw that last time we looked at verses 14 and 15 last time and that's the first gospel right when satan is cursed to have his head crushed by the seed of the woman, and God puts enmity there, ultimately between Satan and Christ, but between Satan's spiritual offspring, everybody who, who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't humble himself and admit his sin, those are the seed of Satan, the children of Satan, Jesus calls them, those who don't believe in him, and then the seed of the woman, those who are the body of Christ, Christ is the head, but we are The spiritual seed. We are those who believe. There's enmity there. There's always going to be animosity in this world. The unbelievers, they don't have a problem so much with what you do regarding them. They have a problem with what you do regarding God. That you acknowledge God to be higher. That you make God more important. And that convicts them because they know they should. That's why we'll never get along. We'll never have this peace and harmony that John Lennon sung about, you know, if there was only no religion. It's not going to happen. And if it did happen, it would mean that the believers have left God and joined the rebellion. And then we would all have our harmony under Satan to our own destruction. Beloved, that's what we saw in this text, that enmity. Thank God for the enmity. That God won't allow us to become like the world. That he'll keep us. And that as he defeats Satan through his own wounding, and that's the being crushed, having his heel crushed, that he does that to deliver us from the judgment of God. That the judgment falls on him instead of us. And he has to take that. And so in these judgments, when we see all of the hardships and the difficulties and sure, the problems of this world, we need to remember two things, that ultimately it's because of our willful, heinous, and absolutely abominable rebellion against God. And number two, that in these very judgments, God is is working the salvation of his people. 
that these judgments in our text, which are hard, which bring difficulty in the world, pain we're about to look at, that therefore our salvation, if we believe in Christ, they're to draw the unbeliever to Christ to believe and to the believer, they are to perfect him and to keep him again from going back to his old sinful ways. And that's what we need to notice in this text. And it's our glory, therefore, to participate in the sufferings of our head, the Christ, and to be part of the program of God for salvation. Yes, if we are in that head, we too are going to suffer affliction. We're going to suffer from Satan and from his seed. We're going to feel that, right? But if we do, it's for our good. It's for our glory. It's because God is working salvation, not only for us, but through us to others. And so secondly, I want you to notice salvation and pain. I want you to notice salvation and pain. The word pain is in the text three times in the Hebrew, only once in English. It's the exact same word. I want to point it out to you. In verse 16, where he, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and your conception. It's translated sorrow. Same word pain that you get. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then in verse 17 to the man, cursed is the ground for your sake. In pain you shall eat of it. The exact same word. Pain, pain, pain in the Hebrew. All right? It's a broad word. It can mean sorrow. It can mean toil. It can mean anguish. It can mean distress. I don't have a problem with them translating it sorrow or toil. I just wish they would be consistent through the whole thing. So that you would see it's the same judgment being meted down, whether it's to the man or to the woman. It's the same judgment. It's pain, 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 sorrow, 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 toil, 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 whatever you want to do with it. And it's what we have in this world because of sin. In fact, it's used, it's it's pretty broadly used in the Old Testament, this word. And it usually refers to a psychological, mental anguish, more than, than like physical pain. It's only once or twice is it actually referred to physical pain. It's usually to this distress and this anguish that we have, that we all know that's part of this life in this world, this agony, this hardship. Webster defines pain as, quote, a localized or generalized unpleasant bodily sensation or complex of sensations that causes mild to severe Physical discomfort and emotional distress and typically results from bodily disorder such as injury or disease. There's a sense in which which pain is unnatural. We shouldn't experience pain. God didn't make us for that. Pain comes in as a result of sin. And it's God who puts it there. Remember these are judgments from God. But they are also for our good. The pain itself... Is for our good. You know, if you read about pain, it's a mystery. What is pain? Scientists and and, uh, philosophers have discussed it. Why do we feel pain? Where does that come from? Of course, if you believe evolutionary science, the only uh, motivating force that they can have in us at all is that it benefits our survival, right? So, you know, you feel pain because uh, pain, by feeling pain, you'll flee from whatever the source of pain is and you have a better chance of surviving. And certainly there's an element of truth in that, right? If you put your hand on the stove and it's turned on, you pull it back immediately. Hopefully you do it quick enough to where you don't have third degree burns because the pain, right, it's, it's helpful. But the problem with that is there's all kind of pains that don't help us, that don't benefit us at all that are detrimental to our health. And there's pleasures that are actually bad too. 
So it's not like we should always run to what feels good and what runs and run away from what feels bad. That's what drug addicts do. That's not what we're supposed to do. And yet, if you think about it, there's been more time and money and effort spent on getting rid of pain than just about anything else in this world, right? I mean, so many things. Get rid of pain. Have pleasure. I mean, that's what the commercials are always about, right? Buy my product and it'll be, you know, Miller time or or whatever. It'll be great. It's for the weekends now. You know, buy this product. Do this. Take this pill. Get this shot. Whatever it is, it's always about get rid of pain and have pleasure. And that's what drives much of the world, much of the world's economy. We flee from pain. We run from pleasure or we run to pleasure. But all pain isn't bad, and all pleasure isn't good. But what is God's good purpose in this pain? I've said in this text, there's a salvific purpose. Well, first of all, notice where the pain comes. To the woman first, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your pain, and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. He doesn't say in pain you will not bring forth children. He doesn't say in pain you'll never have children because you're cursed. You will have children. I mean, they should have died. He should have killed them. You're going to live. You're going to have children. But there's going to be pain now. There's going to be pain with this great blessing. The blessing of the ultimate salvation. The seed of the woman. I mean, he's just promised her that. Salvation's going to come through you. But there's going to be pain along with that. Right? And he says to the man, In pain you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. But he doesn't say, In pain you shall starve. And that's what he deserved. In pain, you'll never eat anything. In pain, you shall eat. You'll continue to eat. And eating is pleasurable. Eating is good. right? We spend all this money on having all these great dishes that we can make. So it's blessing that pain attends. Secondly, we also notice that there's a lot of goodness in God in allowing us to overcome a lot of that pain. Right? I mean... We don't all go home and have to grow our own food, do we? And, you know, work it with picks and shovels because we've developed these great machines and tractors and everything else where one man, you know, plows hundreds of acres and makes enough food for thousands of people because God has allowed us to overcome a lot of that. And that's true for for the woman in childbirth, too. You know, we've had four children and two of them, Robin was able to get the epidural which helped her a lot, that God would allow us. You know, there are things like that, that that women can do that can lessen that pain. God has allowed us to do that. And in coming together and in working through a lot of the, of the judgments that are on our sin in this world that make life harder, man works together, right? Man can show mercy to one another. Man can be sympathetic to one another. A lot of overcoming the pain brings us together, causes us to focus on positive ways to help one another. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. We're always looking to make things less painful and more convenient. And that all is in the world. Because God has brought this restrained judgment on sin. Very restrained. We've never felt pain to the degree that we deserve it. If God gave us his wrath. So there is mercy mixed in with this. But there's also, beloved, a salvific purpose to the pain. One of the commentaries that I read said this, quote, The judgments inflicted by God are the remedies and the restraints 
of our vitiated nature, if we never felt pain, in other words, we would just become slaves to pleasure. Because of our sinful nature, we would never restrain ourselves from anything. If there wasn't a danger to feel pain, we would run off into all sorts of sins and we would run away from the gospel. We would run away from Christ. We would lose ourselves in the pleasures of this world. Pain is here, beloved, not for our destruction, but for our salvation, that we would not become too attached to this world. That we would recognize that even in the most pleasurable things, there is an incompletion, right? There is a, there is, there is a pain. There's a reminder. It's not enough. I mean, look at all the millionaires who've died killing themselves because it wasn't enough. They had everything they could have. It wasn't enough. That's why there's pain to, for us to remember that. That this world really is, as our Puritan forefathers called it, a veil of tears ultimately. That even the best pleasures that we have in this world will be worse than our worst day in heaven. And that's a fact. And we need to remember that. So there's a gospel purpose of pain. Pain and anxiety and sorrow and distress. It's a witness that there is sin in the world and that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven as Romans 1 says and that this world is broken and it will not be fixed. There is no lasting home for anyone here. Even if you could live a whole life without pain as we saw in our call to worship, you're going to get 70 or maybe 80 good years. And that's it. That's going to end too. And then what? What happens then if you haven't made peace with God? And so there's the gospel message. There's a gospel purpose that in pain we see God's very, very restrained judgments everywhere. And we see his mercy everywhere. That today's the day that we would hear him. That we would come. And so pain should drive us to hate and forsake our sins, which is the true cause of pain. And to embrace God's salvation, which is offered because we don't have pain so bad that it takes us away Or that God removes it completely so that we don't even think about him and worry about salvation. Calvin says it this way, quote, All the sufferings to which the life of men is subject and obnoxious, all of our sufferings, are necessary exercises by which, listen to this, by which God partly invites us to repentance, partly instructs us in humility, and partly renders us more cautious and more attentive against Uh, more attentive in guarding against the allurements of sin for the future when we go out and we hurt ourselves because we've indulged in some pleasure. That's a good lesson, isn't it? And it helps us. And it even helps the wicked who never turn to God to not experience more judgment in the world. And so in the incredible mercy of God, pain is supposed to either drive us to Christ if we don't know God or cause us to seek him even more if we are Christians, to recognize we cannot be deceived by clinging to the world, by running after the pleasures of sin, because there's always going to be pain, and it's never going to satisfy us, because God in his mercy has put pain. And so thirdly, I want you to notice salvation and conflict. Salvation and conflict. This is what I think many are most concerned about, that there's conflict in the world, right? That people don't all get along, people do bad things to each other. And we see conflict all through this text, and it's divinely placed. Let's just acknowledge that. Our sin is the cause, but it's there because God put it there. God puts the pain there in verse 16 and 17, and God puts the conflict. You see conflict in the second half of verse 16. Conflict is in verse 17, verse 18. It's in the beginning of verse 19. It's not in the first half of verse 17 when God said to Adam... 
because you have heeded the voice of your wife. That was not Adam's sin. We need to make sure that we, we clearly say that. It was because Adam ate from the tree, heeding the voice of his wife was the instrument by which he ate from the tree. But guys, it's not wrong to listen to your wives. That's absolute nonsense to think that. God's going to use the exact same Hebrew words to command Abraham, heed the voice of your wife. Almost the exact opposite thing. Heed the voice of your wife. Why? Because in that text, Sarah was telling Abraham to do what was right. So he should listen to her. Here, Eve told Adam to do what was wrong. So he should not listen to her. It's the content of what she said. Adam's sin was eating in the tree, eating of the tree. And it was because Eve a good notice here, the voice of your wife. So there was clearly some conversation that we don't get in the text. Remember, Scripture just gives us what we need to know in order to fear God and to serve Him. So there was some kind of conversation. But whatever it was, Adam and Eve agreed. They were in harmony. She got him for whatever reason. Ultimately, I think Calvin's right and the others, that he did aspire to some higher state of being that he thought he could have. He joined her in that rebellion. He thought that he could replace God with her. He listened to her voice. He was seduced ultimately, as the Westminster divines say, by Satan because he believed his wife who was being Satan's instrument at that time. But whatever the case may be, the two of them agreed. They had complete harmony. So now the judgment is disharmony. The judgment is conflict. And again, you see the salvific purpose in that. That God would not allow man to completely and harmoniously unite themselves together against him again. We can't. Because we can't completely have peace with anybody in this world. Even your best friend you get mad at sometimes, right? We can't have it here. Sin gets in the way. We can't join together all one against God as Adam and Eve and Satan, the serpent, all joined against God. God now puts conflict so that will never happen again. It's to keep us from becoming one with Satan and one with sin in one another. This is the conflict here. And it's the source of much of the pain. If you look at the ESV of this verse in verse 16, it actually says this. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Notice the ESV uses childbearing there because the Hebrew word actually can include the whole gamut of raising children. You know, it's not just the moment of giving birth, in other words. It's the whole gamut of raising children because it's constantly, right, stressful. And we're filled with anxiety and worry the whole time. It really struck me when our first child was born, Calvin, how this just was true. I felt this, this pain, this anxiety. And Robin had a lot of trouble with him. There was complications. But when they got him out and they put him over on the scale, and he's like moving his arms, you know, like, and it just looked like a swimmer to me. And I just thought he's the swimmer. And for a while, I even called him the swimmer. But the real thing that came home to me as I'm watching him, you know, seconds old, set on the scale, is that this great sorrow in my heart. I can't protect him. I can't, you know, as his arms are flailing, something could happen to one of those arms. I can't stop it. No matter what I do, no matter how intelligent I am, no matter how strong I become, no matter what I do, I can't keep harm from coming to my son in this world. It can come in so many ways. And I just felt that sorrow. I mean, I was joyful that I had a child, but I felt this overwhelming sense of helplessness that that son of mine is going to die someday. And I can't stop it. And I can't protect him. 
That's the pain of child rearing, right? That we can't keep our kids alive in this world. That they're going to have sorrows. That they're going to have pain. And we can't stop it. And that's what this judgment is saying. That there's this constant tension and conflict and worry and anxiety and stress that comes in our closest relationships. In verse 18, where the thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. Here we see conflict between man and the creation. That the creation which before would have readily given man what he needed to live, now man's going to have to force it out of the ground, right? You're going to have to force it out of the ground. What naturally comes now are weeds. I've planted gardens before. It's been years since we live in Coriopolis. I can't plant anything. We don't have any sun with all the trees. But I tried one year. Nothing came up. But when we had a garden back in in, um, Walton Road, and we had a big garden, and weeds would constantly come in, you know, and I'd do everything I could to get rid of them. And poison ivy would come in and, you know, and, and thorns and thistles. And you have to work so hard to get those crops to grow. Everything, it's like you have to force the ground to yield it to you. And that's what this text is saying. That there's conflict now between man and the earth. That it doesn't readily respond to our efforts. That we have to do all kinds of things just to eke a living out of the ground. That it, that it not only resists us, but it actively opposes us. It actually produces things that are noxious, that are dangerous. Calvin and Luther and many other commentators see all sorts of new creatures coming into existence at this point. Not that God creates a new, but that the corruption of sin causes these noxious creatures. Calvin, or Luther talks about weeds and poisons and noxious beasts. Calvin even includes things like bad weather, frost, thunder, untimely rain, drought, hail. And he says, whatever is disordered in the world are fruits of sin. It's funny to me on the insurance papers, we'll call them acts of God. You know, we want to blame them on God again. They're actually acts of sin. You know, if the tornado comes and causes your house to fall, that's an act of sin. That tornado's in the world because of us, because of our sin. There wouldn't be anything like that. There wouldn't be any harm. There wouldn't be anything that would cause suffering or death in the world. And what's interesting about the judgment on the man, verses 17 to 19, every single thing in that text falls upon the woman too. Did you notice that? Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all your days. It's not like women don't have toil in getting their food, right? Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. It's not like if Robin walks through the garden, the weeds all die and wither and the plants sprout up because this is only to the man. You know, only thorns and thistles only come to the man. That comes to the woman too, just as much. And ultimately, the death part, to dust you return. It's to both. In this whole passage... 17, 18, and 19, the curse that's spoken to the man comes upon both. And I would argue that that's true in verse 16 as well. As I've already said, husbands and fathers feel the experience of the pain of rearing children as much as the women in the process. I know you go through that pain in the birth. I was there for the four of them. I know I've told you before, but I did experience some of the pain of childbirth. And Calvin... I have this wedding ring on my finger and my wife's taking my hand and and she was in serious pain. And she's squeezing the finger and my ring was just smashing my finger and it hurt so bad and I wanted to tell her to stop. But I figured she was probably a little distracted and think I was being selfish (laughs) at the time. So I just endured that pain for her sake. The pain of childbirth. 
But really, I think, again, if you look at it in that sense, and then this last section here, and I haven't commented on yet because it's the most difficult section, the your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. A lot of different opinions here. And I could comment on the fact that that word desire is only two other places in all of the Old Testament. One very positive, the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved and his desire is for me and it should be, that's good. And then in Genesis 4, 7, where God says to Cain, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Obviously, a very negative thing. Sin wants to control you and take you away. My best understanding of this judgment, and again, I think you've got to keep this in the context of judgment. Even the salvation is judgment, right? He's going to crush the head, but his heel's going to get crushed. Everything is in the context of judgment here. So you can't look at this as good news. And what I don't think we can do is make half of it bad and half of it good, which many have done. Your desire, Eve, is evil. You know, your, your desire is bad. But he's going to rule over you, and that's the corrective. That's not it either. I think this whole thing is, again, a judgment. I think this is the way it's going to be. Everything in here, the way it's going to be, right? You're going to have to toil now. To get food from the ground. There's going to be thorns and thistles. You're going to die. There's going to be pain and child rearing. How can we make anything positive in this text? Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. Conflict. In the most intimate relationship that there is. Now there is conflict. Even in the one flesh. Your natural tendency. Ladies is going to be. To try to control your husband. And your natural tendency men. Is going to be to try to dominate your wives. They're both negative. And it does actually happen in the world, even if it's not in this verse. But this is what I think we see in this text. I, don't, I can't say it any better than the Reformation Study Bible, which I recommend again that everyone gets a copy of. The, the note on this verse says this, quote, The harmony, intimacy, and complementarity of the pre-fall marriage, how they perfectly complemented one another, a relationship are corrupted by sin and marred, listen, both by domination and enforced submission. Marriage now, as every other human relationship, sinful nature trying to, trying to dominate the other person, sinful nature trying to use the other person, sinful nature, try, I mean, this is, what, this is what we do by nature, Right? We're constantly doing this. And again, what does this do? As believers, this should point us to Christ. This should show us that there's no hope in our social programs to bring us together. There's no hope in what we can do in the flesh. There's no hope in in the latest science or education. The hope is in Christ, the Redeemer. He will be the one who will heal our relationships and allow us to truly love one another. And the fact of the matter is that in Christ we can Those passages about marriage in Ephesians 5, for example. That shows us the restoration. How a wife godly and willingly submits to her husband. How a husband loves his wife and leads her that way. By love. Not by this ruling domination. And the wife submitting. Not by a a controlling desire. It's in Christ. Again, this is driving us back to Christ. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice salvation and death. Salvation and death. Verse 19 says that they will go back to the dust. That's what we are. By the way, this very scientifically accurately describes what happens to the body, which they would have never known that back then, that the body actually decays back into fundamental uh, elements and molecules, just becomes part of the ground again. But Adam and Eve will die. 
Some say, well, why didn't they die that day? God said in the day. Well, first of all, they did. Spiritually, they died that day. They became dead in their transgressions and in their flesh. They had no more desire for God. I mean, the passage in Ephesians 2 was Adam and Eve in the garden. We've already seen it, how they respond when God shows up. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He was at work in both of them. Among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of, of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. That happened the moment they died. And their eyes were open, and they were filled with guilt and shame. They died spiritually. But not only that, that moment their bodies began to die. Their bodies became mortal. And they began to die. Bodily death started and spiritual death occurred on that very moment. And this is why, again, all worldly social efforts fail. We don't just need health. We don't just need a handout. We don't just need a hand up. We need an entirely new nature. It starts there. An entirely new nature that can only come from Christ and believing in Him and repenting from his sin, your sins and acknowledging God's rule and reign in the world and submitting yourself to that. And that's what Jesus purchased. And this is where even death has a salvific purpose. Yes, the death of Christ, that was symbolized by the bruising of his heel. He'll have to die physically. But our deaths, our deaths have a salvific purpose. The fact that we who believe in Jesus have to experience death, that actually is for our good. You understand that? That this too is not a judgment on us, that God is displeased with us. If you're a believer in Christ, God is not. All of his wrath has been taken away. And so why do we die? Because you still have a sinful nature, right? We fight against it. And it's, it's not the body. We don't die so that the soul can be freed from the body. Some weird Platonic Manichaeanism or something like that. No. Sin chiefly resides in the soul. I, my soul uses my body to sin. My body wouldn't do anything unless my mind and my heart didn't want evil. No, but when we die, beloved, that sinful nature stays dead. It will never come back. I mean, for the Christian, dying is putting off this old nature. Paul calls it a state that is far better. That we go to be with the Lord. That in death, the only thing that dies for us is this nature that still loves sin. That by the grace of God loves God but has to battle. We have to battle ourselves until we die. But that's going to come to an end. Ultimately for you, Christian, death is a blessing. Notice in this text, one final thing to notice is that the curse falls on the serpent and the curse falls on the ground. But the curse does not fall on human beings. Nobody in this world who lives is accursed. Today's the day of salvation. God has restrained his judgments. He is showing you mercy. He's showing you the pointlessness of just living for this world. There's pain, there's sorrow, there's suffering, there's death, no matter what you do. But if you trust in him and believe in him and live for him, even those things, and especially even death itself, won't separate you from him, but will actually bring you into his presence. That's what God has done. And that's what these judgments are doing, beloved. They're showing us that the only way 
to actually have the blessedness that was lost in the garden is to believe in the salvation that comes through the seed of the woman and to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that even in judgments, we see how you are causing us. You are, you are leading us to turn away from sin and Satan, to believe in you and to seek your salvation, your solution to all of our problems. Father, we pray that we would do this, that we would not be deceived or beguiled to try to think that we can work with the world, with the seed of Satan, and try to fix things in this world. But that we would want to bring the gospel message to the seed of Satan, to those who are in darkness, to see even them one back to you. For we too were as they were. We too were children of the devil until you saved us. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you and we pray that we would be encouraged that every act of judgment, every act of even injustice we see in this world is a reminder to us that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord who will make all things right. And we pray in his name. Amen.